on Two Astrodial Illusions. We, uh, quick programming note, uh, Sundance 2021 is just around the corner. Uh, I've actually started watching a few of the films. We'll be doing what we did last year for that in Slamdance, 20-minute uh, uh, interviews that are being booked. Uh, I was about to say as we speak, but we're recording, so the emails are coming in as we speak. But uh, we'll figure all of that out. Uh, but before we go, uh, before we do... Uh, film stuff, we have a topic that uh, I'm super excited to talk about, and I'm super excited to have an audience that uh, is really has proven uh, over 110 episodes uh, really up for anything. And uh, I think this is a conversation that, that really needs to be had uh, broadly as a, as a country, as a world. Uh, we, we don't talk about menstruation enough and uh when we do it's often sort of clouded and taboo and it makes people uncomfortable and we have some experts here who uh have done some tremendous work in this field and they're here to talk with us all about menstruation um we have uh inga winkler and aj loic uh, do you want to tell us a little about yourself inga do you want to go first sure um so i'm a professor at columbia university i teach in the human rights program um, and before I started working at, at Columbia, I used to work with the United Nations. And that's how I got originally exposed to, to menstruation and menstrual hygiene as really a topic that we need to consider in the context of, of development and human rights. Um, and originally, I really, the way I started thinking about it was very much in practical terms about access to menstrual products. Uh, menstrual hygiene, sanitation facilities. That's kind of the area I was working in. Um, but since then, I've come to realize that there is so much more to think about and that menstruation is about so much more than just bleeding. Uh, and that it's for all of us really entrenched in, in social, cultural notions and ideas and perceptions. Um, and that's what I'm really interested in exploring and then thinking about how that influences and how it should influence policy making um well and many of those ideas we were able to explore in the handbook in the paragraph handbook of critical menstruation studies uh that colleagues and i co-edited and that came out last year so yeah happy to talk about all things menstruation and aj so I'm AJ Loic. Um, I use they, them, their pronouns. I'm a non-binary trans person based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia. And my research looks at trans and non-binary people and reproductive life and reproductive health. So I'm kind of interested in the broad umbrella of reproduction, which brought me to thinking about menstruation as a particular topic underneath that umbrella. So um, kind of more junior scholar in my <laughs> in my capacity as compared to Inga, um, but with very much a trans health focused um, kind of perspective on the topic. Great, and uh, as Inga mentioned, uh, she was the co-editor of uh, the Palgrave Handbook of Critical Menstruation Studies, and I'm really excited about this book because um, you know, we've we've done some academic, uh, we've had some scholars in the past, uh, re recent past, and we've been uh, able to, they have uh, published work that we're able to uh, access, because I know access to a lot of this stuff is uh, complicated with, with academia. So in the episode description, we will link to the Palgrave Handbook. And uh, what I also really like about it, you click on it, and they actually take you chapter through chapter. There's a, It's a really extensive book. I think it's over a 1,000 pages. Uh, and they, they have separate links for each chapter. And it, so you can kind of, you can click on that. You can scroll through and uh, pick the, the chapter that's uh, of the most interest to you and check it out. And uh, I'll also, I'll link to the, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the trans and non-binary topics uh, a little later in the show, but I'll link to that chapter as well because there's some fun cartoons and I know that our audience uh, lo loves that stuff. So uh, it's it's really great to have a, uh, a handbook that is so easily accessible for, uh, as someone who's participated in academic books, it's kind of frustrating when you publish something, people say, I want to read it. And it's like, okay, here's this $60 book, you know, that's, uh, and that's sometimes even just for the ebook. So that's certainly uh, really wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were really pleased that we were able to make the, the handbook open access and we received funding from the Water Supply and Sanitation Collaborative Council, which is a small UN organization, and they made this possible. 
And I think it makes a huge difference because we want everyone to be able to to read about menstruation and to read about menstruation from from so many different perspectives that we were able to cover on on the more than thousand pages. Um, and I very much agree that too much of academic research, uh, while often publicly funded, then remains behind paywalls and is not accessible to to anyone who doesn't have a university subscription. So I think the question that um, was on my mind as as I've been uh, researching and preparing for this episode, and I, I imagine it's probably on a lot of the viewers' minds, is why is this subject considered so taboo? Why why are people so uncomfortable talking about a very uh, natural part of of the human experience? Why 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 is this topic? just considered why is it so clouded in such like mystery and stuff it, it it there has to be like it has to be like some sort of start to all of this not 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 that if maybe there's not a specific genesis point but it just it it it, it endlessly fascinates me well it fascinates me too and um i think the the short answer would be the patriarchy um and then obviously i think there's a lot there's a lot more to that and trying to to unpack that but i should say up front that i don't think i have a definitive answer to why menstruation is so is so stigmatized but i've certainly thought about it uh quite a bit and i think a lot of it has to do with what we ascribe to to menstruation and how we perceive menstruation. And I often go back to to Gloria Steinem's essay, um, "If Men Could Menstruate," that we that we also reprinted in in the handbook. Um, and I think what it really shows is how how all of this is made up. By, by us and made up by men because you I mean what she really shows is how you could certainly turn it around I mean you you could ask uh, well how could you be a medical doctor if you don't have the experience of bleeding how could you be uh, an astronomist if you don't have that cyclical experience uh, that you can then relate to to other um fields of, of science how could you be um, a rabbi or a priest without having this monthly cycle of being able to get rid of impurities and uh, I mean she obviously put that a lot better than I just did um, but I think what it really shows is that we ascribe certain properties certain ideas certain notions to, to what we perceive as feminine and what we perceive as masculine. And then obviously menstruation um, kind of goes right into that. And I think that's really the, the origin or that is kind of where all the taboos and menstrual stigma um, comes from. And I don't think, uh, I think what we often hear is that it has so much to do with, with religion and culture. Um, but I don't think it's religion as such. It's what we make of religion. And I just finished some um, some research with a graduate student, uh, Trisha Maharaj, in, in Trinidad. And she interviewed quite a few uh, Hindu women in the Hindu diaspora in, in Trinidad about their experiences with, with menstrual practices, menstrual beliefs. And they were quite clear in saying, well, they thought that, well, it's men who invented uh, all these ideas and these notions and what we uh, think about menstruation. It's not in the religious text as such. And uh, I'm no religious scholar, but uh, I think many of those ideas are certainly present in in how we think about many different religions. Um, and I think on the flip side, that means that it's also up to us uh, that we can all contribute to changing menstrual stigma um, and that if we want to, uh, we can certainly work to, to flipping around those ideas and to think about menstruation much more positively. Yeah, and I think building on that, some of the kind of words that came up, um, both right when you started the episode, you mentioned taboos, Inga then just then mentioned purity, I think one of the things that comes up for me is the work of Marie Douglas, who wrote a book in the late 1960s called um, Purity and Danger. And she tells us that we as a society are 
we kind of perceive as risky bodily fluids that leave the boundaries of the body. So we also treat as taboo urine, excrement, vomit, pretty much anything that leaves the bodily bodily boundaries. We treat it as risky, as something to be ashamed of, where its management should be done in secret. And then if you layer a thick dose of misogyny on top of that, we can maybe get a, a preliminary understanding of where this menstrual stigma comes from. Um, it's stigmatized in the same way a lot of bodily fluids and their management is stigmatized. And then layered on top of that is the fact that there's only certain bodies who do this thing. Um, those And those bodies are kind of subjugated and subordinated and marginalized in heteropatriarchal societies. Um, and so as a result, we have kind of double layers of shame and stigma associated with menstruation. And we're taught from a very young age, like, it is something to be ashamed of. It's something you don't talk about. It's something gross and disgusting. And all of those things get internalized. And then, you know, to talk about your period makes you somehow a bad kind of woman or trans person. Um, and there are social consequences of kind of pushing back against those taboos. I'm glad you brought up the uh, Gloria Steinem interview. I'd, I'd read that uh, in in the handbook, and she brought up so many great points that kind of link link into the the uh, sort of the complicated relationship between the patriarchy and and its origins and all of this. Because she points out, if men could menstruate. You'd have people like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood would be like the spokesperson for uh, for tampons. You'd have uh, boys in the locker room sort of comparing how much blood they'd be able to make. It, it would just just kind of that simple uh, flip of the script would would create a whole different world than the one that we live in. And yet here we are. It's still, you know, uh, uh, decades, decades after the uh, tampon was invented, we're still fighting for uh, affordable access for, for people, uh, and, and Congress is still not taking that up, a myriad of uh, other things that they seem uh, unable to do. But uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's so interesting just to think about how this, uh, how, we, how we got to this point and why even, even uh, in all of the kind of, uh, all of the time that we've spent nationally kind of and internationally looking at uh, the, the, how, how society has, has treated women and trans people. And uh, yet here we are still kind of. In many ways, that's not surprising though. Right. Like yeah. we're still fighting for, <laughs> as you said, like this is one issue among many that is kind of stalled by people in power being unwilling to concede even an iota of that power in order to kind of treat people equitably, right? And so like, we're still fighting for maternity leave and paid parental leave. Um, There's still, you know, cisgender women are still underrepresented in governments, let alone trans and non-binary people. And so if we think about the fact that the people making the decisions are cisgender, heterosexual white men, they're not gonna concede their power um, for the sake of people who that power is predicated on the subjugation of others. Right. Um, and yeah, menstruation is just very much caught up in that as one among many of the examples of, of how we're kept down. Like if we don't allow folks access to menstrual leave, if we don't um, destigmatize menstruation, if in fact we kind of layer you know, our misogynistic and patriarchal ideals onto people who menstruate as being necessarily inferior or too emotional or this or that, well, then we can kind of essentialize their subordinate position in society. And that seems natural and normal. And it gets to, you know, the status quo gets to stay just the way it is. Yeah, I very much agree. And I mean, looking at uh, Gloria Steinem's piece, I mean, the fact that it's 40 years old, I mean, or more than 40 years old, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, sometimes I feel like it's a little frustrating because I was just talking to to my students yesterday uh, in a course that we teach on, on menstruation, gender and rights. And I asked them, well, so do you think have do you think that things have changed over the last 40 years and would you completely rewrite the piece and would it be different today? And I mean, they obviously brought up a couple of points. I mean, in particular about how, how the piece is really not gender inclusive um, and that discussions have advanced a bit. But I mean, the essence of the discussion was that it's still um, very, very valid. 
Um, but on the other hand, I I do think that some things have happened at least over the last decade or so, and that there is um, not comprehensively reflected in policy making yet, but that there is a moment around menstruation. Uh, that there is a lot more, I mean, just when we look at the mainstream media, when we look at the NGO scene, when we look at funders, um, there is some movement around menstruation and there is more attention to it. And I think it's upon us to really capitalize on that moment and to to ask for more and to really use it to to bring about broader societal change and use, I mean, the, the entry points that have been identified so far and what we have seen, it's all very much linked to, to menstrual products, um, to, to pads, to tampons, to menstrual cups. Um, and I certainly don't want to dismiss um, that those of us who menstruate, that we need something to, to bleed into or to bleed on. Um, but products alone will will not address, will not change menstrual stigma. Um, and I think when we look at what what has been happening so far, um, I mean advocates managed to to get uh, provisions on menstrual menstrual products in federal prisons. They managed to get that into the First Step Act. Um, then the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, the first one, um, includes menstrual products as part of flexible spending accounts and healthcare spending accounts. Um, there's also been some some changes in the emergency food and shelter program how menstrual products can be can be supplied. Um, so there have been there hasn't been the big change the menstrual equity for all act that. Uh, Grace Meng and many other members of Congress are, are pushing for has not been adopted. But there are these small changes, yet they're all focused on, on products uh, with very few exceptions. I mean, there's also been additional funding for, for endometriosis research uh, that I want to acknowledge. But overall, the discussion has been on menstrual products. And I think that is what we need to, to use as an entry point, whether at the federal level or at the, the various states levels, to, to push for more um, and to start thinking about what else needs to change to, to tackle menstrual stigma, um, to bring about menstrual justice. And I'd be happy to, to talk more about that, obviously. Yes. Um you know, b before we uh, dive deeper into that, I, I just wanted to note a comparison uh, between uh, menstrual activism and trans activism that I saw in my research for this episode. And uh, one of the chapters of the book mentioned uh, there was a Newsweek uh, cover picture that said there will be blood, you know, get over it in a picture of a tampon. That was in 2016. Mm -hmm. And I, immediately, I thought we we mentioned uh, longtime listeners will know that I even talk about you know uh, Laverne Cox's Time Time Magazine, the transgender tipping point cover, Caitlyn Jenner's Vanity Fair cover. That whole dynamic is is so important for visibility, and yet at the same time, it can for, for people who don't engage in in this kind of uh, these kind of topics on a day to day basis. Seeing that can also kind of send the signal. Okay, it's visible. We understand it. We're we're now able to talk about it in some capacity, and then some people will say problem solved, and they kind of you know there's there's mm -hmm. I, I'm very into in film and and uh, in trans activism the the where do we go from here visibility and all of that is never enough. You have to that that's a great launching off point, but you it's not enough just to launch off. Yeah, I very much. I mean, I think the the parallel is is a great one because I mean the the covers. I mean they they bring about these these moments, uh, and I I very much agree that we need those those entry points and that visibility is great. Um, but we've been talking about entry points now for for a while, and not just in the in the U.S. I think the the entry points in other countries are are slightly different. I mean, in the U.S., we see a lot of discussion around uh, taxes on, on menstrual products um, in, in other countries, um, such as, I mean, I've done a lot of research in Kenya and India and, and Senegal, um, and the entry point there 
are very much about menstrual product provision and then sanitation infrastructure. Um, but So they are slightly different, but what combines and what they all have in common is really that they are very tangible entry points uh, that really allow for, for that visibility that you were talking about, Ian. And I think it is so much more difficult to, to bring about change and to introduce policies uh, that are not directly linked to these very visible, tangible outcomes, but that doesn't make them any any less important. And I think that makes them even more important. And I think what, what we need in the field of menstrual justice is, on the one hand, to, to take a much closer look at education um, and how we speak about menstru menstruation, the menstrual cycle, um, in the context of, of sex ed, but much beyond that, um, to really increase body literacy, to enable everyone, uh, and not just the people who menstruate, to really understand their menstrual cycle, um, to understand what's normal and what might not be normal, to know uh, when to seek healthcare, to know that we don't have to suffer on a monthly basis with with menstrual pain, uh, to be able to to advocate for for ourselves, um, and that then also links to the entire field of of healthcare, uh, where we need a lot of change and where we slowly slowly see more attention to to endometriosis. Uh, which is a painful condition where uterine tissue grows outside of the uterus that affects uh, an estimated 10% uh, of people who menstruate in the US, uh, 10 or 11, something like that. Um, and um, so it's huge. And we see slowly some more attention to, to that, but certainly not the attention it needs and deserves. And the diagnostic delay uh, for people with endometriosis is somewhere between seven and ten years. Um, and that's just one of the many menstrual health conditions, whereas others get even get even less attention. And so often we find that when we look at it from the perspective of people who experience painful periods, uh, they don't necessarily have the capacity to self-advocate. They don't really understand uh, their body to the extent they should because we don't have proper education uh, and we are told to just hide it, just deal with it, just push through, just get over it. Um, and then when we look at it from the other side, we see that healthcare providers are not necessarily trained to the extent they should be, that they often dismiss um, uh, pain that we experience, in particular black women's pain. Um, and uh, I'm sure AJ would be happy to to talk more about healthcare experiences by by trans and non-binary uh, people. But overall, I think those are the two big areas that really need to be addressed um, in much more detail. Where we need to think about well, what does adequate, comprehensive, age-appropriate uh, menstrual education over the life course really look like, and what does menstrual justice mean for the entire field of healthcare um, and how we need to, to reform that space. So if we, if we are serious about entry points, then we need to, to push that door that we have. We need to push it wide, wide open and um, start thinking much more comprehensively about menstruation. Mm -hmm. And the thing that came up for me, Ian, when you were talking about that comparison between kind of the new, seemingly new visibility being paid to menstruation and that seemingly new visibility being paid to trans people and trans issues is the kind of double-edged sword of visibility, in particular for trans people. Um, I think of my friend Cass Bliss, who's otherwise known as the period prince, who's a non-binary person who brought a lot of attention to trans people who menstruate. They started the hashtag bleeding while trans. They were featured in the Huffington Post. They are kind of known as this very visible and public figure who was willing to talk about their periods as a trans person and willing to talk about 
the barriers to menstrual health care that they experienced, and they were very visible. But their visibility was then used against them. They were mercilessly cyberbullied. They had hate videos created about them. Cis and trans people alike thought that their willingness to talk about their periods discredited their transness, that they couldn't possibly be trans if they were comfortable talking about their periods, that like a condition of transness was to be dysphoric and distressed in your menstruation, and that here was this person, you know, talking openly about their periods. And so if we expect vulnerable people to be visible before we're willing to make changes, um, that visibility often comes with incredibly tangible material, financial, and emotional risks for the visible person. And so, you know, do we do we need visibility? You know, is is that really the solution? And you know, we know that this there's a large portion of the population that bleeds. Do we need people to kind of put their bodies on the line in order for equity to be sought? Like. I just want to push back against this kind of notion of visibility, recognizing that for many trans people, their visibility is something that actually causes them a lot of risk. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, it's something that I, when I give a, uh, I I mean, I I get pretty much uh, uh, practically a dozen LGBTQ related uh, pitches a day for films, books and stuff. And oftentimes they're like really clunky and I'll offer just like a suggestion like, hey, this language uh, is, is terrible. Uh, you should probably switch it. <laughs> and they'll say like, oh, this is also this, there's a big distinction. Sometimes they'll say this is new to me or this is new in general. And when they say like this is so new, it's like, no, it's not. I, you want, I, I, I will give you a nice like I'll compile a nice database of all of the historical people you just because you showed up to the party five minutes ago doesn't mean that it's yeah. So I mean, I I I, I totally feel that, and I mean, listeners have heard my, some of my healthcare. Uh, I mean, there have been some real gems in terms of just awful healthcare, even in a place like Los Angeles, which is supposedly if you're getting treated poorly as a trans person in LA, I mean, the rest of the country, my my God, but. Uh, one thing that is still even uh, we we talked about it recently uh, in our we did a medical episode on uh, Star Trek themed and I was talking about how so I, I take progesterone about a third of the uh, third of the uh, month which essentially to kind of stimulate the the the, uh, the bodily benefits of of the men- menstrual cycle obviously I don't bleed but um, it comes with all these side effects that of cramping and all of this. And oftentimes when I try to talk about it, I'm just met with instantly with, well, you could always stop. And it's like, well, that's not really, yeah. I mean, the transition is, is good. It's side effects are not necessarily something that um, you, you uh, are, are huge deal breakers, but, but just, just a conversation that that's centered around like, this is what you signed up for all of this. I mean, it's just not productive. And to have that, those kind of uh, pushbacks in like a doctor's office or something, you're just staring at some of these people, like you don't know what you're talking about. And I just shudder to think like how many, how often the healthcare system fails people in a subject like menstruation, which uh, really shouldn't be a mystery to anybody. You're, you're right. This is not something that visibility sh- is, is, is really all that design. It, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be something that we, that, that is needed. We should understand it. This is not, this is not that complex to understand that people menstruate. Well, and I, it reminds me, I'm, I'm doing some, they're called patient simulation exercises right now where, Um, Me and one of my colleagues have hired some trans actors to pretend to be fictionalized patients. We've set up with a backstory and a set of symptoms, and these student physicians get to practice taking a patient history. And we've made it so that this one fake patient is a trans man who's experiencing um, excessive bleeding and lots of pain with his periods. Um, And these student doctors you know, so many of them, they'll kind of pussyfoot around the the issue or the question, like they don't want to say, so do you menstruate? So do you bleed? They'll say like, do do bodily fluids leave your, you know, like, they can't even ask the question directly, because they've internalized this kind of stigma. And then here they are training to be doctors, and no one teaches them 
except us perhaps, you know, it's okay to ask someone outright about their menstruation. If it's, you know, diagnostically important and you suspect that the, you know, pelvic pain they're experiencing is connected to their menstruation, well, ask them about it. And so in addition to teaching them kind of trans competencies, we're also teaching them, you know, to push back against this menstrual stigma as future physicians, that it'll be important for them to do so. And so, yeah, if you think about the generations and generations of doctors who never got that education, who don't know how to serve trans people, who don't know how to, you know, serve racialized people with any degree of cultural competency, who you know, don't know how to work with interpreters who don't know how to do this, who don't know how to do that. And then you add menstrual stigma on top of that. We just have doctors who are completely ill-equipped to provide competent care to menstruators. Yeah, I'm so glad you're doing, you're doing those, uh, those exercises, kind of training, AJ. I think it's a great initiative. And I think it's one that we would need on a much, much broader scale. Because, I mean, if physicians, if doctors are not equipped to, to ask those questions, I mean, then who can we expect to, to do it? And, I mean, going back to, to the discussion about, about visibility, I do think that, that visibility is, is important. But I think the problem is that we put the entire burden on the people who have the actual experience and to experience what's what's stigmatized. And we really, in society, we put the burden on people who experience marginalization to, to basically make that experience visible. And we ask very little from... Um, people who don't have that experience and going back to to politics and many many uh hetero white cis men who who serve in politics um who have no idea um about any of those experiences and who are also not particularly open to to learning about those experiences um and i mean when we talk to Uh, to to policymakers working in this field over and over again, we heard, ooh, but that's a women's issue. No, that's not serious policymaking. Uh, no, we don't want to deal with those issues. And I certainly don't want to be, speaking from the perspective of, of male policymakers, I certainly don't want to be publicly associated uh, with that, be visible in that space. Um, and I think that is where we need to demand change and where when I look beyond uh, the US, I mean, the work we did in, in India and, and Kenya and also Senegal, there were a lot more uh, men working in high level government positions who were uh, willing to, to come forward, who were willing to, to engage um, on issues associated with with menstruation and who who started talking about i mean in in very limited limited ways uh but who started talking about about menstruation and to acknowledge that it is an issue uh that needs that needs much more attention you can't see me but i was nodding along that whole time <laughs> <laughs> how how do we How do we create a um, sort of whether whether it's in in government uh, with, with leadership or uh, in places of employment or or even even just places where we socially act? How do we create a more inclusive space for people to to talk about menstruation? I mean, I think just by talking about it. I mean, the fact that we're talking about it today that you've lent this platform for us to reach your audience that this book has such a far reach that more and more people are researching it, that like the only way I think is to, is to, yeah, create space where people can talk about it without feeling as though they're going to be silenced or shamed by, you know, normalizing having period products in places by normalizing, you know, helping your friend if they bleed through their pants because that's just like a regular day of the week for people who menstruate like yeah just kind of exposing the secrecy around menstruation um pushing back against that secrecy because that which we cast into the shadows is going to be laden with stigma and so can we bring it into the light Yeah, I very much, very much agree with that. And uh, I think we need to we need to start early with kind of the talking about menstruation, normalizing menstruation. Um, but then I think 
we need to get beyond that point of of talking about menstruation and i think we need um we need more more solidarity and i mean going back to this point of just putting putting the burden on people who have the negative experiences i think if there were to be uh more solidarity if people really came together i mean whether it's the workplace whether it's in policy making um i mean if i ever go back it doesn't feel feel so unreal at the moment but if i ever go back to to the office i think if i remember the first time i was just like um well i mean what's the point i don't have to hide my tampons on the way to to the bathroom but even with all the talk i do about menstruation that felt like a very very conscious decision and i think if all my colleagues did the same and it just became something really normal um then we constantly see menstrual products that we don't shh and hush about them uh but it's just part of everyday discussion um and if we then know that we have the support from whoever is is in charge um i think that would make that would make a huge difference and i think what we've seen in in other countries is really this importance of of champions of people who are willing to to champion the the menstrual cause issues related to to the menstrual cycle um and who are then who are in that position of power so that they have the possibility to to introduce changes and i think then from that point we need to get to a point where it's really much more common to talk about menstruation where certain um issues are just normalized where menstrual products uh, are as available as as toilet paper where we we all feel comfortable to say well um i don't feel feel well today uh, i have menstrual cramps i need to take some some time off or i'd like to work from home or i need a bit more flexibility um and really make normalize menstruation and also know that the people who will take those decisions that they will take you serious and not dismiss what you're talking about um and really create that enabling environment where where everyone can deal with menstruation the way they want to yeah inga and i think as you were speaking it reminded me of just you know the importance of embedding menstrual activism into all other activisms because they're so intersectionally connected so like are you doing prison abolition work well that's a menstrual health issue are mm -hmm. you trying to eradicate homelessness well that's a menstrual health issue are you looking at you know affirming sex education well that's a menstrual health issue you're looking at you know student poverty that's a menstrual health issue like and so putting menstruation menstrual health menstrual equity on the agendas of these other activist efforts mm -hmm. um and so that it's not this kind of siloed movement that happens on its own but is necessarily a part of all of these other efforts to eradicate inequities um because it's all it's all connected right yeah absolutely and i mean that's uh, going back to to the handbook as such i mean that's really what we tried to do mm -hmm. acknowledging these this diversity of of experiences and how Uh, menstrual experiences are interconnected with being in prison uh with um being homeless or experiencing homelessness with uh living with with disabilities so really in the first section of the handbook uh we we included a couple of chapters uh that deal with a variety of different experiences and we were also we're really keen to to include first person narratives where people speak from from their own uh experience that don't really come in in the format of what you'd expect as a traditional kind of research chapter uh but i think those are some of the most most powerful pieces so there's uh, a chapter from from a woman in in the gambia who speaks about her experience with with child marriage and uh, how that was linked to to her experience of menarche um there's another chapter by by a woman from chennai in in india who speaks about um deepthi sukuma who speaks about um her caste and her experience as a dalit woman 
and how all the the ritual impurities uh, in quotation marks that are associated with menstruation, um, how they don't really affect her as a Dalit woman because she's considered impure every single day of her life, just uh, by by the fact of being being considered a Dalit. Uh, so menstruation intersects with that, obviously. But uh, in the end, I mean, her chapter and so many others show that these these patterns of oppression and subjugation are so much broader than just linked to to menstruation and uh, how they are constructed at a societal societal level by what we ascribe to to particular conditions or ideas. So I very much agree. I mean, it's really important to to consider menstruation not in isolation, but uh, very much uh, in linkage with other social causes. One piece along those same lines I wanted to highlight uh, as somebody who does a lot of work in uh, political activism, uh, back in 2016 when he was the governor, still the governor of Indiana, uh, a man named, named Mike Pence, whose name's been in the news a lot lately, uh, he passed this this law that uh, was really restrictive. It was, it was aimed to restrict uh, access to abortion, but uh, it had this overly broad language that basically uh, of how to discard uh, a fetal tissue, whether you had a miscarriage or, or an abortion. And uh, there was this great moment of uh, the book describes it as menstrual trolling, which really spoke to me as somebody who uh, advises a, a super PAC that spells out troll, the really online lefty league. Uh, they would call him uh, a group of period activists would call him his office and give updates on their periods because I mean uh, under the language essentially uh, you would have to if you had uh, if you were menstruating you 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 may legally it wasn't really uh, it wasn't really decided by the courts but in theory according to the overly broad language you may be legally required in Indiana to go outside and dig a hole and and bury your pad to 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 fit with the law which is uh, ridiculous and. Um, I, I, the, what really stuck out to me was these people are outspoken. Uh, they're willing to use humor, and uh, I, as somebody who really likes to use humor when possible to uh, break down barriers and say, like, you know, especially like with with trans uh, topics or trans activism, uh, people can get just so overly serious. And I'll be like, look, this is often transition is actually quite a, a funny journey, and it's 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 good to approach these things kind of with levity. I think that's kind of a way to be uh, to to invite people in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the chapter is by Berkeley Connor, a graduate student, and uh, I mean, period for pens. I think it was an amazing um, initiative, and it really shows. I mean, how we can think about menstrual activism uh, beyond kind of the usual policy, direct policy advocacy um, and I think we need much more of of that and I think uh, what's also really exciting space is the whole menstrual art space uh, and there are a couple of chapters in or two chapters in the handbook that deal with with menstrual art uh, whether that's art that directly uses menstrual fluid or whether there are depictions of of menstrual art I think that can also be a really powerful entry point um, and create visibility around issues that would otherwise not be not be visible um, so I really like those those chapters as well and I think they're amazing artists who who deal with menstruation yeah and I mean humor is so powerful to break down that stigma right like I remember maybe 15 years ago, I was working in an abortion clinic. I, I kind of come to my trans-inclusive reproductive justice work via abortion activism and abortion healthcare access. Um, and we held a fundraiser called Comics for Choice. And we had three comics come and make abortion jokes. And for some, it was considered this like complete taboo. Like, this is so crass. How can you make jokes about abortion? Abortion is so serious. It's so this, it's so that. And it was like, well, no, it's just, it's a, it's a healthcare access. It's a technology that's available. And, you know, the fact that it's considered so heavy in society, sometimes we need to cut through that with humor. And anyone who's worked in abortion clinics knows that sometimes you make jokes and that's, you know, bring a sense of levity to the situation. And so can we do the same thing with menstruation where like, instead of being ashamed of bleeding through our pants, we laugh at it. Um, and yeah, kind of in the interpersonal level, 
um, but also at that kind of policy lawmaking level as well. Um, I think, yeah, arts and humor um, have a really important place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think if we were all able to to make that shift, because, I mean, we should ask ourselves, what's the big deal? I mean, if there is, uh, if we show that we are bleeding and if we are bleeding through through our pants or skirts or whatever. And um, I, I think there's so much that we associate. And I mean, just the terminology we, we use in terms of... Uh, soiling yourself and uh, staining um, and all that and I think that's where we need to 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 ask ourselves I mean why do we all consider it such a big deal I mean why um, are we told that this is a moment of embarrassment that's by all means uh, to to be avoided Um, and I think uh, if if we are able to to get to a point where we change that discourse. I mean, that's so perpetuated by everything we learn, by how menstruation is um, is portrayed, by how menstrual product aids um, portray menstruation. It's always about the the concealing and the hiding and the keeping it secret. And it's always about getting those messy, leaky bodies uh, under control. I mean, AJ, you started talking by... Uh, talking about the the menstrual the bodily fluids and the menstrual fluids and I think that is what we need to reconsider and really think about well I mean what's the what's the big deal and um, what if our our management isn't perfect Um, nothing happens and if we actually see blood I mean nothing bad happens so I think that's a point where where all of us can start uh, to to think about well do we actually need to wrap used menstrual products uh, in layers over layers of toilet paper to hide them in the trash and um, do do we actually need to hide everything we are doing should we consider wearing white if we want to wear white uh, and not make it a big deal um, and similarly in, in the language we we use i mean can we just talk about the fact that we are menstruating rather than speaking about those days of the month and uh, so i think there's a lot of change that can happen at an individual level as well mm-hmm. yeah i just when, when you said uh, the wrapping uh, when i had bottom surgery uh, about 14 months ago 15 maybe um I uh, had to. I had to use. I went through a lot, a lot, a lot of pads. And uh, my my cisgender uh, uh, partner and my mother were both like, "You have to wrap these in toilet paper when you're done." I'm like, "Well, that seems like a waste. We just went to co- we just went to Costco. I don't want to go back. Like, I'm not wasting all this toilet paper. Like, I'm not going to do that. You shouldn't do it either." Um, so I totally, totally relate. Uh, I had a question. So I, I've thought a lot about the term menstruator. It's used a lot in the handbook, and I think uh, we covered a lot when. Uh, the certain children's author J.K. Rowling decided uh, she would torpedo her film franchise and become a <laughs> number one trans bigot in the world. I, I can't. I, it's it's so painfully like not funny what she's doing, and yet like I just the whole it's so absurd. But um, she made she made the term menstruator one of one of one of her rallying cries, mm-hmm. and she would say like you know I've seen other British. It, it, transphobia in the uk is such a disaster right now but they they rally oftentimes in in kind of ways that is reminiscent of uh some conservative lawmakers they just like state this i think the word you're looking for is woman like this kind of nonsense but Mm -hmm. the way the way that you both have been discussing like i i think it's i mean not all cis women menstruate and not all people who menstruate are 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 women Mm -hmm. so i mean the term menstruator cuts through everything and it's very very you know exactly what you're talking about when you use that term and i think when we're talking about healthcare or just even in 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 day-to-day life i mean i i think the term has such tremendous value and just the the sheer bluntness of it 
Yeah, I think it's uh, it's such an interesting crystallizing point for for that discussion. I mean, to, to put it mildly, and I mean, I've often gotten, I mean, whenever I post something on on social media and say menstruate or even just people who menstruate, which seems even, I mean, they are people who menstruate, right? Uh, we all are people who menstruate. Um, and I've gotten a lot of responses uh, saying, oh, I think you mean to say women. Uh, and I'm like, no, I don't. Um, but I mean, I think generally with with questions of, of terminology, I think for me, it's about following the lead of, of people you, you talk about. And I mean, if someone who menstruates doesn't want to be called a menstruator, then I wouldn't call them a menstruator. Um, but I think um, the the term can be really, really useful in being in being gender inclusive, uh, obviously, and in acknowledging. I mean, Ian, what you said uh, that it's not just women, and that certainly not all women uh, menstruate, um, and it really works to raise that vis visibility because it is something that got people talking about it um but that being said i mean i do think and uh, i hope that doesn't uh, go into into jk rowling's critique but i hope it's a little more nuanced i do think there's a risk when we when we label people as as menstruator that we reduce it to that experience of, of menstruating. Uh, and then we really, I mean, that there's a risk that we focus too much on just that particular occurrence of, of menstruating. And that we don't really capture, I mean, everything, I mean, that what we've been talking about for the last hour, everything that's encapsulated within menstruation and all the uh, subjugation and misogyny and oppression that's associated with with menstruation, the broader gender injustices. Um, so I think in my in my own work, I mean, I try to to actually think about who I'm talking about and um, who whose experiences I'm talking about and what context um, I'm I'm talking about it. Um, so I think it's, uh, I mean, I definitely, I definitely like using, using the term, but I also feel that sometimes using, I mean, simply people who menstruate and people who also have a lot of other experiences and experience a lot of other disadvantage in, in their lives, uh, can also work really well. Yeah. I always try to approach these types of topics by balancing gender neutral and gender specific and inclusive language so like can we use menstruators people who menstruate and then when it is politically salient to do so name all of the people who fall under that category so menstruators by which we mean some cisgender women trans men non-binary people and even some trans women which is frequently not discussed and, and so that we don't um, kind of erase the fact that these menstruators, this category of person, are by definition people of marginalized genders. And so sometimes it behooves us to, to name explicitly all of the people for whom that word refers. And then sometimes we can just use neutral language. And I use this, you know, pregnant person, by which I mean, and then you name all of the kinds of people who might become pregnant. Um, and so we can balance a kind of neutral approach and an inclusive and specific approach to language. And I mean, I think, you know, to speak to the JK Rowling situation and the kind of exclu trans exclusionary so-called feminist persuasion, like it, it exemplifies a fundamental misunderstanding about the differences between sex and gender and reifies a kind of biological essentialism that feminists have been trying to fight since the very beginning. Like that, a woman is the thing that her body does is, you know, like that womanhood is somehow tethered to menstruation, pregnancy, lactation, childbirth, etc. Like, that's what feminism has been trying to untether for generations. And so to now have a group of people who purport to be feminists, using that same biological determinist argument in order to invalidate the authenticity of trans people's identities is just, it's a complete about face. And I think it just shows us how when some people gain 
relative proximity to power, as some cisgender white women have done, they then use their power to shore up the boundaries and borders of the kind of categories of personhood that their, you know, cisgender white women's job has become mobilizing their power against other people. Um, and J.K. Rowling is a fantastic, you know, example of that. But but they yeah, ultimately, when it comes down to it, this is biological essentialism. This is the very thing that feminists have been pushing against since the beginning of like women's organizing. Yeah, we see a lot of overlap. Uh, oftentimes, these uh, anti-trans groups are in bed with uh, groups like the Heritage Foundation, which are very anti-abortion, very broadly gay marriage. Like a lot of this goes hand in hand, and there's been a lot of great research. But I, uh, to to go back to the the sort of the gendering of of menstruator, I mean, on a broader scale, not just like looking to be trans and non-binary inclusive, but but just like the fact that. A lot of these uh, uh, products are uh, overly feminine. They like it's like a pink section. You walk into the uh, uh, pharmacy, and this does this does create problems for um, uh, fathers who are uh, needing to go and buy these products for spouses for all sorts of people. Uh, it it kind of creates a layer of, you know, a, a man doesn't want to, I mean, that, that trope's been kind of done a lot and it's, it's ridiculous, but at the same time, you've got to think like, is, is this really the best way to do it? And it creates barriers for people to, to engage with this kind of stuff. It's, uh, it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a menstruator knows that they menstruate, like you don't need to beat them over the head with it. And like, even if we're just considering cisgender women, not all cisgender women, like, run through meadows wearing floral print dresses right like that's just <laughs> not like gender is so much more nuanced than that and so like why do we need to wrap menstruation in this like flowery hyper feminized packaging um you know menstruators menstruate they know they menstruate they know they need products to manage it uh, it's not as though you know you're going to walk into the pharmacy and go Hmm, I don't see the menstrual products because I don't see, you know, flowers and butterflies on the packaging. Like it's completely unnecessary. And I think it just speaks back again to where we started, which is like misogyny, patriarchy, femphobia, like all of those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think it has so much to do with, I mean, where we started. I mean, that the that the bodily fluids are are considered messy and leaky and that we that they are stigmatized so we need to or we are we're told that we need to create this this layer of flowery images and i mean when you look through there's so much work on menstrual advertising and all the usual tropes i mean with the white pants the flowery dresses the sunlight the dancing um <laughs> it, it just goes on and on and i think it's kind of put onto menstruation as this, this layer of concealment because menstruation as such, we don't want to see it. Uh, we are told that we should not want to see it and it's not considered feminine. Um, so we are told by, by menstrual advertising and by the product companies um, that they're, yeah, that uh, we need kind of this layer this layer of concealment, this layer of making it attractive by by turning it pink, um, and I mean obviously that is I think that is one of the one of the easiest and most most obvious changes to make. And to their credit, there are menstrual product companies uh, that have moved away from from all the pink, flowery, fluffy stuff, uh, but uh, to to a rather limited degree. But even that is not without controversy, right? Like always, I think three or four years ago at this point, they removed the kind of women's symbol from their pads after some kind of pressure from menstruators of various genders. And then people wrote hate articles about always for like erasing women in menstruation. And, yeah. we, you know, mm -hmm. we circle back to that kind of trans-exclusionary bioessentialist understanding of womanhood. Um and so, like, to do so seems like a, a fairly low-hanging fruit step to, mm -hmm. you know, addressing some of these issues. And yet, at the same time, there are some people for whom, like, 
well, no, like, of course they should have flowers and butterflies and kittens on them. Like this is, these are women's products. Um, and so yeah, like it's not without controversy in a way that, yeah, like makes us laugh because it seems so funny. And yet at the same time, like for some people, it, you know, it's an injustice that we've taken the women's symbol off of the always pad packaging. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm a person who menstruates. I don't need you know, rainbows staring up at me when I'm dealing with my period um, and and appreciate those changes and try to invest in period products that, you know, and companies that have moved away from that kind of really obvious marketing strategy. But for so many people, they have no choice in menstrual products. They aren't kind of choosing between products based on their sense of ethics or based on which aligns with their genders or, you know, that kind of thing. They, they get what they get what they get. And, uh, and so being able to choose one's menstrual products is also something that is quite privileged. So as we, uh, as we wrap up, I have a final question that I always, I, I try my best with final questions with people to not just ask something that's so overly broad and essentially unanswerable. <laughs> nobody likes to get those questions. So we're going to try and, uh, try and make this a little easier. What is one thing that you just anything, not like the biggest thing or just, just one thing that you would like a person who hasn't really thought about these topics before or, or and, and wants to be, to be an ally or to be able to, to foster a space. What's one thing um, you want them to uh, take away from your work or, or just to keep in mind as they go about their day-to-day life? That's a great question. You've stumped us. <laughs> it, it happens. I, I'm always like, how do we ask the final question that, that everybody does this? And uh, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> I think my issue is that I have a list. And so narrowing it down to one is difficult, but... I suppose it would be that if you're bringing attention to menstruation, if you're, you know, attending a rally or writing a blog post or posting something on Instagram, like whatever you're doing, um, to not do so in a way that reinforces cis-normative gender binaries. Like this isn't about quote pussies. This isn't a women's issue. This, you know, like so to bring attention to the fact that there are trans and non-binary people who menstruate. And so whatever you do to bring attention to menstruation ought not erase that fact. That's a great one. Uh, and I very much agree with that. And I think I would, I would add maybe on a somewhat, somewhat broader level is really to, to challenge your assumptions and to, to challenge, I mean, if there's, uh, if you've ever thought about menstruation, then to to really ask yourself, well, I mean, how do you consider menstruation? What do you think about it? And then why do you think that is? And really reflect on where you've learned that um, and and challenge yourself. And I think if if all of us were to do that, and if we then uh, find people with whom we can work in solidarity and find allies, uh, then there's a lot we could we could take forward. Because what I found so so often in my work is that I mean once we get beyond this kind of initial reaction of you're doing what? You're working on menstruation and you think there's a whole body of work and that really occupies you. I mean once they get beyond this initial um kind of uh, surprise uh, then people are actually quite quite open to to address menstruation to talk about menstruation and I think that is really what we need to to capitalize on and to to make sure that the moment we we have that we can use that to turn it into a much broader menstrual justice movement for social change here here I think that's a, a a great note to end on. I could have personally talked about this for like another two or three hours. I think that's uh, you know some uh, a, a sign of a, a good conversation. And um, 
thankfully, if you if you want to learn more, the uh, Palgrave Handbook is available. It's linked in the episode description. Highly encourage you. There's just so many chapters and a lot of international stuff. If you uh, have experience with that and you're interested there's just there's so it's and it, it's so neatly organized and uh wonderful and we know that people uh like to follow along with that kind of stuff while they listen to us because morning commutes and all of that uh are uh it with all of the covid stuff going on but uh inga and aj it has uh it has been a absolute pleasure to talk with you i'm, I'm so grateful to be able to have these kinds of uh, conversations and to, to use this space to uh, talk about things that people wouldn't maybe necessarily talk about. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks so much to you for doing this kind of work and for having us today. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Ian. I, I think Inga and I could both also talk about this for, for hours and hours more. So, Oh, yes, uh, and I often do. So, uh, <laughs> but I really appreciate having, having this hour with you. <laughs> Well, uh, and, and to everybody listening, uh, go, go check out the handbook. And um, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time.